glasses on. Last time on The Spectator. The city of Joliet awoke on September 26, 1957, to find that crusading newspaper editor Molly Zelko had appeared to vanish from the face of the earth. The last trace anyone would see of her, a pair of small, black high-heeled shoes, laid toppled in the grass next to her 1955 Chrysler. Just because. Theories as to the cause of her disappearance immediately abounded. Was it the staunch anti-gambling stance of her newspaper, The Spectator? Did she meddle in politics one too many times? Did she cross the wrong person who had the right connections? From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. It didn't take long for newspapers to mention Bill McCabe in nearly every article about Molly's disappearance. Virtually everyone at the time concluded that to understand what happened to Molly, you first had to understand her connection with Bill McCabe, the paper's owner and Molly's longtime employer. Before we dive into McCabe, I want to introduce Dennis Henrietta to help us tell this part of the story. Dennis has researched Molly Zelko since John Whiteside and Lonnie Kane reopened the case in 1978 as reporters for the Joliet Herald News. We heard a few quick sound bites from Dennis in episode one. Forty years later, he has proven himself to be an expert in the circumstances surrounding the disappearance. Early in his life, Dennis was drawn to detective and mystery stories and found the Molly Zelko case even more compelling than fiction. I'm nowhere near the uh, um, career journalist that Lonnie is. Mine's more as a hobby. I, uh, I've been a mystery fan forever, and it, it, started, it started basically with my... Uh, um, enjoyment in mystery novels. I was a kid. I was a, my older sister was a, a scholar and an avid reader. Bookshelves galore. I came along behind that, read everything my parents bought me on baseball and pirates and cowboys, and I discovered her Nancy Drew books. And I read the Nancy Drew books, even though they're supposed to be for the girls. Anyway, discovered the world of mystery and plots and clues and and plot twists and and was hooked and then movies came out first the godfather then chinatown and what i saw in both of them was this connection between crime politicians business social movements big big picture three years later i am at home and the Joliet Herald News is sitting on my kitchen table, and I see this front page story of this little cartoon, if you remember the first story. And I pick it up and read it, and it's by John and, and, and Alani, and it's about Molly Zelko. Dennis is the personification of the classic conspiracy theory image we all have of a wall full of photos, maps, and charts linked by pins and strings. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of every player in the Molly Zelko story, no matter how large or small their role. He can rattle off dates, details, biographies, and every manner of complex circumstances surrounding the disappearance, without so much as a page of notes in front of him. His threads, as he calls them, 
offer some of the most fascinating theories about the case. Like Lonnie, Lynn, and virtually everyone else who studied the Molly Zelko case, Dennis underscores the importance of Bill McCabe. I'd call her Bill McCabe Light. From the day she got out of business school here in Joliet in 1927 until she disappeared in 57, she was side by side with Bill McCabe. He was her boss, her mentor, father figure, big brother figure, business partner. Um, and I'm speculating on this. I emphasize this is purely my conjecture. I think they may have been lovers. Possible. And what happened is she developed her political views, her editorial standpoint, her, her friends, her enemies. They were all Bill's. Her viewpoint was Bill's viewpoint. Her friends were Bill's friends. Her enemies were Bill's enemies. McCabe is a fascinating part of this story because of what happened to him uh, in his role at the newspaper. That's reporter Lonnie Kane again to give us a little more of McCabe's biographical sketch. Um, he was born in Grundy County. He went on to, to serve six terms as a state representative. Uh, he was admitted to the bar in around 1916. He was also a one-term mayor in Lockport, uh, and then he was the Will County State's Attorney. And it was in the State's Attorney's office that people say he started to uh, uh, take a tighter look uh, and focus on the gambling and police corruption in the county. As McCabe's political career waned in the late 1930s, he armed himself with a new weapon to fight corruption, the purchase of the weekly newspaper, The Joliet Spectator. McCabe uh, bought the Spectator in 36, 1936 in June, uh, all its stock. And, and I think at that point in time, the weekly paper was about nine years old. Um, and he bought it uh, shortly before he left the state's attorney's office. About six months later, he left the state's attorney's office, and then he took Molly with him to the newspaper. And the Spectator hit the ground running. Uh, it, 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 you know, he, McCabe pretty much said their mission was to seek the truth, tell the truth, be fair, and uh, have no mercy on corruption, crime, uh, gambling. And in that same year, McCabe wrote something that attacked a, a, a guy who was a bailiff, saying that because of his mob connections, there's no way he should be a bailiff. Uh, and the bailiff just beat him up. <laughs> that wasn't the first time he was beat up. But that kind of shows you the, it kind of gives you a feel of the atmosphere and how McCabe approached things. The bailiff who assaulted McCabe was Liam Kelly, one half of the Kelly brothers, known to be the chief operators of slot machines in the Will County gambling rackets of the 1930s. Kelly served under Judge Edwin Wilson, who had issued protective injunctions in favor of the Kelly slot businesses, to the point where he was threatened with disbarment by the state. McCabe was left with a black eye by Kelly, and Kelly freely admitted to the assault in the Chicago Tribune. The Tribune also noted that bricks had been thrown through windows at the offices of the Spectator just days prior. In what was probably no coincidence, Joliet Township government voted to place a tax on slot machines weeks later, which was reported to have cost the Kelly brothers $60,000. Not long after, McCabe ran against Judge Wilson on the People's Party Republican ticket. The Chicago Tribune opposed Wilson's re-election, criticizing him for issuing injunctions protecting the slot machines, pinball rackets, and law-breaking saloons. Though McCabe lost the election, Judge Wilson was later indicted, along with Deputy Kelly's brother, for election fraud. So, among the many lessons Molly learned from Bill McCabe was how to make enemies. Now let's go back to Dennis Henrietta to talk about these years leading up to McCabe's acquisition of The Spectator and the rivalries he formed in the process. What happened is coming out of the Depression, the country blamed the Republicans. 
So the whole country went Democrat, except Will County. McCabe, the state's attorney, was Republican. The county clerk was Republican. The county board was Republican. But countrywide, it was all Democrat. And the state and the courthouses were Democrat. Judge Wilson was Democrat. He saw an opening to take over. Back then, running the gambling was as day-to-day -day routine as collecting the money out of the parking meters and turning on the lights when you walk in the office. It was just, that's how it was. Wilson wanted to be head of the Democratic Party. That 1935-36 year was was a benchmark and things changing in Joliet. The next decade would continue to be a violent one in Joliet as rival factions fought for control of political offices and gambling rackets, oftentimes one and the same. Liam Kelly, the deputy who punched McCabe, met a violent end himself, shot to death in his own driveway as his wife and daughter looked on in the fall of 1946. Reports at the time accused the assailants of attempting to muscle in on the Kellys' business. These events would not only culminate in the disappearance of Molly Zelko in 1957, but in Bill McCabe's own near disappearance in 1948. In 1948, he was driving home. He lived uh, out by Lockport, and he was uh, beaten up. He was 64 years old at the time. Two guys beat him with clubs or pipes, and, uh, and he was actually left for dead. He survived, uh, but he was never the same after that. He, he wasn't an invalid, but he just wasn't the same. When he was beat up, he was 64. And at the time, he said, and, and Molly was convinced, that the people that uh, beat him up had uh, mob connections, and it was all about their constant anti-gambling crusade. And they're convinced that that's what drove him uh, to be beaten up. When McKay was beaten up um, and left for dead on the side of the road, it was Dean Raleigh from Joliet Junior College who found him. That was Lynn Lichtenhauer again. We heard from her in episode one. You might remember that Lynn went to work at The Spectator after Molly's disappearance, using Molly's actual desk and typewriter and covering her society beat. Lynn remembers how McCabe's beating shook the close-knit community. He was beaten up with, a, described a club that had like spikes in it from the boys from Detroit, you know, the boys. <laughs> That's what it said. So anyway, um, they took pictures, and I saw those pictures when they wheeled McCabe in on the gurney into the hospital. It was the whole front page of The Spectator. News of the near-fatal beating of a newspaper publisher quickly made national headlines. The photo of a bleeding, battered McCabe that Lynn talks about not only ran on The Spectator, but on front pages throughout the country. It really is haunting. It's a kind of violent, sensationalist photo, which was typical of the journalism of the era. It would never be run in a newspaper today. Even in a grainy 70-year-old black-and-white image, you can see the fear in McCabe's eyes as he lay in paralysis, clearly in shock, with blood running from his nose and mouth, literally and figuratively a wounded animal. It's hard not to feel bad for the person in the photo, and to want those responsible brought to justice. People that we talked to uh, that knew Molly, people we talked to in 1978, they're no longer around, said that Molly became obsessed with solving that beating, uh, finding out who did it, and she never really gave up in, in that search. And this kind of goes to show, again, her bond with McCabe. Even McCabe was, uh, after that beating, was guarded for several months by local police because they thought 
that uh, he might also still be a target. There's an interesting little fact which adds to the fascination of this story. Uh, he was beat up on April 7th, uh, 1948. The story goes that on April 6th, the night before, he woke up from a, a dream that he had, a nightmare that he said he would never forget, and he told reporters this. In that dream, that nightmare, he said he was covered in blood in his mother's arms. Uh, and then the next night, uh, he is covered in blood. So, what do you... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's... The beating of my heart Says we'll never Miraculously, McCabe recovered from the incident, but virtually everyone, then and now, concluded he was not the same person. They also conclude that Molly was filled with an unrelenting desire to see that those responsible were brought to justice. To add insult to injury, newspapers audaciously identified robbery as the official motive for the beating, despite the clear political implications. There is an interesting political scenario that what was going on at that time. Uh, McCabe was actually running uh, for a powerful position as a GOP committeeman, and he was running against a very powerful uh, person who was also a state central committeeman. Um, and it, it wasn't the sort of a pos position that, that this uh, Republican that he was running against wanted to lose. McCabe had been critical of, of a political machine that was operating at that time uh, in his column. And after he was beat up, of course, then his uh, his actions running uh, in the race, uh, you know, his campaign faltered. There was no doubt that he wasn't going to win that particular race. Uh, there was um, a gentleman that endorsed McCabe for this precinct race, and uh, he was president of what at that time was called the Will County Colored Voters Republican League. And uh, they actually posted a guard. After McCabe's beating, they had posted a guard at his home also. Um, because he had endorsed McCabe. And he told police that he had been accosted by a couple of men who basically told him he needs to back off. And the quote that he gave the police was, they said, you're next. I think when he got beat up, he was a shell of himself. He was depressed. He was, he was uh, discouraged in the legal system that he believed in all his life as a lawyer and as a state's attorney, that no one was charge, no one's being investigated, no one got punished for beating him up. He no longer could do his duties as well, although he worked up to the spectator till he died. The cave was an interesting guy. He was very he, he, he was virile. He was a horseback rider, a boater, pugilist, boxer, uh, very avid and I think Molly was drawn to his although he was twenty years older than her, I think she was drawn to the fact that he was that kind of guy. If you haven't guessed by now, there is an underlying implication that the ultimate nature of their relationship was romantic. This was par for the course after Molly's disappearance in 1957. But just to be clear... Would have to be labeled speculation. Speculating on this? That's speculation. This is all speculation. You'd have to call this speculation, I guess. But I, I think that they, they had a working relationship and a bond where I think he took care of her. Uh, and she took care of him by working hard and helping him in any way she could. And that just grew. Um, they, they, they clearly had uh, an admiration for each other um, that uh, was obvious. Now, the people that worked at The Spectator said it was always very respectful. She always referred to him in the office as Mr. McCabe. 
uh, always. Uh, and, and that's what other people heard too. Uh, he was always like a, kind of a revered figure. Uh, and maybe that was it. So as Lonnie implies, whether there was or wasn't a romantic involvement, a physical relationship and professional partnership between Bill and Molly wouldn't have been mutually exclusive. They respected each other. And, and according to her family, she had a, she had a very strong uh, sense of right and wrong. And um, that I suspect that that is something that she saw in McCabe also. Maybe she saw him as a crusader, and she just wanted to be part of that. Um, I can't see any other reason other than he, uh, here's a woman who uh, wanted a career, wanted to advance, uh, wanted to be involved, and then she uh, gets attached to, to a gentleman who is extremely involved, extremely attached, and has, has been a public servant uh, even before he reached state's attorney. Um, and, and, and so there had to be a, a certain awe for you. She's 17 years old, so there had to be a certain awe in his power and his influence. And uh, so I think she just hopped on that train and uh, loved the ride. Fred train, Fred train, going so fast. Fred train, Fred train, going so fast. I don't care what train I'm on, as long as it keeps rolling on. In any investigation into the Molly Zelko case, the rumors, taboos, and innuendos of the 1950s are present. But whether friends, lovers, colleagues, or any combination of those, what is clear is that Molly, in one way or another, had an intimate relationship with Bill McCabe and was determined to avenge his attempted murder. She was like a bulldog. When she had something to report, she didn't let it go. Bill McCabe was her boss. They were an item. I don't know about that, but that's speculation. Um, But when he was the uh, state's attorney, it was an era of um, crime. Let's say the the mob, you know, we had mob characters in Joliet um, who we knew where they lived and we knew them well. And she obviously was privy to a lot of underworld things. So she wasn't afraid to use them. So I think maybe that's what did her in. People think people think she had to disappear because she stuck her nose in a little bit too far in the mob business. And once she got out of the local mob here in Joliet, um, which was controlled by the Chicago outfit, Um, It was a different story, and pushing her nose into that group was a little more difficult. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the mob, the outfit in Chicago, up till that point, up to the mid-50s, was was run by two guys, Paul Rica and Tony Accardo, and they were old-time mafia. They were old school. They, they, They lived by the codes. They, they, they still fell under the thumb of the New York Five Families. And one of the codes was that you do not mess with a reporter. You, it, they felt it was bad for business. It was a no-no. And if somebody in Joliet, local crime, would have wanted something done about a reporter in Joliet, they would have had to go through Chicago. And following that code, Rica and Accardo wouldn't have done it. Paul Rica and Tony Accardo were two of the founding fathers of the Chicago outfit. Known simply as the waiter, Rika quickly rose to the highest echelons of the syndicate. 
If you need proof of that, the best man at Rika's wedding was Al Capone. Rika's consigliere, Tony Accardo, was known as both Big Tuna and Joe Batters. The latter was a nickname he allegedly earned in his early days as an enforcer after he took a baseball bat to the skulls of two rival gang members. That kid's a real Joe Batters, remarked an impressed Capone. Following Capone's famous conviction for tax evasion and subsequent stint in Alcatraz, both men would oversee the Chicago outfit for the better part of three decades. Impressively, given their chosen profession, they both lived full lives and died of natural causes outside of prison walls. Accardo, in particular, famously avoided incarceration, reportedly only spending one night in jail for a gambling offense. Listen here as Accardo, in his trademark grandfatherly fashion, flouts his lack of a record in testimony before a congressional committee shortly before his death in 1992. Many of his friends are accused of being in the mob. Accardo testified yesterday before a Senate subcommittee when asked if he had any dealings with organized crime, Arcado said he made his fortune in gambling. Are you familiar in any way that, uh, with uh, so-called organized crime, the mafia, uh, La Cosa Nostra? Have you any knowledge at all of that? No, sir. None of, of None any at all. kind? Have you ever been associated in any way with any illegal activity? No, sir. Now, you're mentioned... Uh, Senator, could you re-ask that question? I don't think he understood it. Yes, sir. Is that? But what, what were those uh, illegal activities? Huh? I gambled. The decade of the 1950s, in particular the year of Molly's disappearance, 1957, was a time of increased visibility for the Chicago outfit and the American mafia as a whole. A branding change, if you will. In Chicago, Rika and Accardo, known in the media as the Capone-era gangsters, slowly ceded control to a new generation of leadership, and in the process, a new definition of the old code. Things changed in 57, though, because the Chicago outfit added a third member to its monster, a guy named Sam Giancana. He had pushed his way up through the late 40s and 50s, um, big moneymaker for him. But what Rika and Accardo saw was that he was a way out for them to have the pressure off him. So they make Accardo the boss of bosses, make Rika the Tom Hayden, the consigliere, and, and Giancana's got the title, and he loved it. Unlike Accardo and Rika, who were old school, tried to be under the radar, silent, omerta, Giancana was flamboyant, liked the front page, dating Hollywood starlets, Las Vegas, uh, McGuire sisters, ran around Frank, Frank Sinatra, JFK, Shared girlfriends with both of them. Um, that that bothered the New York mob. They didn't like that. And the heat was on Giancana. Well, as Molly pushed her stories, trying to identify the mob guys and open up some of their wounds, um, Giancana didn't really have to have anything on her. He was just needed to make made to think they had something on her or that they, she had something on him. And that code didn't matter to Giancana. Uh, so now it opened up the door for her to disappear. As with any change in organizational leadership, new policies were instituted, as we will see. Sam Giancana not only represented regime change in Chicago, but of the mafia becoming a household name across America. 
1957 was a significant year for what was going on with the mob. The, the mob was going through, uh, well, they were killing each other, and there was this huge turf battle going on across the country. And they were also, there was also an effort underway for them to try and resolve these differences and, and uh, come to terms. In uh, November, actually the, the actual date was November 14, 1957, which was a few weeks after Molly disappeared. There was a deputy, a, a law enforcement officer, who was driving by and happened to notice all these big fancy cars at this nice big house in a little town called uh, Appalachian, New York. Uh, this turned out to be a huge, and now it's historical, uh, event because what he discovered was a, uh, call it a summit meeting, of uh, the mob from all across uh, the country. Uh, and they were coming there to talk about who would do what and how they were gonna slice up uh, the country and uh, take care of business. The gathering was broken up, there were some people arrested. And this, this particular meeting, in fact, was a few weeks after the murder of the crime boss, uh, Albert Anastasia. Um, but basically, one of the things that happened with this meeting is that it sent a message to law enforcement. In fact, it sent a message to FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who up to this point in time was saying uh, crime, organ there's no organized crime in this country. Well, he changed his mind after this because it was clearly an organized crime effort and an effort to become even more organized and slice up territory. Uh, so it put organized crime uh, on the public table. Of course, Molly had always had it on the public table, the Joliet. One of the interesting things, and uh, John Whiteside had, had written about this in one of his columns uh, after we did our series, that uh, when J. Edgar Hoover finally decided to start taking a look the mob and, and they were doing wiretaps. One of those particular wiretaps uh, picked up a conversation where the mob leaders were talking about this particular summit meeting, but they were talking about having this summit meeting weeks earlier in one of three Chicago suburbs, suburbs that they said they had the territory locked up. For some reason, though, it wasn't held there. It went to the New York, this community in New York State. So John, John always wondered, geez, I, I wonder if one of those suburbs was Joliet. I wonder if Molly knew. I wonder if that had something to do with her being taken. In addition to the well-documented gambling rackets in Joliet, which filled the coffers of the Chicago outfit following the repeal of Prohibition, in the 1940s and 50s, the mafia looked to a new source for unimagined revenue and political influence, labor unions. Attorney General Robert Kennedy paints a grim picture of the rise of lawlessness under the Cosa Nostra, or Mafia. This he describes as the government of organized gambling, narcotics peddling, extortion, racketeering, and controlling of certain trade unions. He says the income runs into billions. The thing about the Chicago outfit in the 50s was after, as they grew through the 40s after Capone, they never really became the giant power that they were till they merged with the Teamsters to use their pension fund as their war chest. That that enabled them to expand into Las Vegas, into the Sun Coasts, Florida, Arizona, and go from you know bags of quarters to zillions of dollars in a suitcase. Jimmy Hoffa, at that time a labor activist who sat on the cusp of his ultimate power as the president of the Teamsters, visited Joliet to personally intercede on behalf of the union consolidation efforts. So the Teamsters and the Chicago mob are married. The Teamsters and Joliet, in 1954, they were expanding. 
They were taking other unions, other cities, all these cities that had unions, trying to merge into the Joliet local. Strength in numbers, more people, more numbers, more money. And they were having trouble getting some to convert. Well, Hoffa and Dorfman themselves came down to Joliet. And unfortunately, they were unsuccessful in getting a couple old hands to, to join. I think Hoffa always felt he owed Joliet a favor. Sure. To support this incredible alignment of power and finance in Joliet, which was backed by the likes of Al Capone, Paul Rica, Tony Accardo, and Jimmy Hoffa, a trusted emissary was needed. Who was the key individual that represented the underworld interests, and who, by consequence, was the chief suspect in the attempted murder of Bill McCabe and the disappearance of Molly Zelko? Fran Curry. Fran Curry. Francis Frank the Thin Man Curry. Next time on The Spectator. The Spectator is a project of the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library. The podcast was produced by me, Greg Pierbolt, along with Joey Lieberman. Interviews were recorded by Keith Folk, head of the Joliet Public Library's Digital Media Studio. Thanks to all our interviewees, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, and Dennis Henrietta. Special thank you to Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library.